Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Corey Woltering. Corey is a professional runner and North Face team athlete who's been setting impressive times on everything from marathons to 100 milers. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, of course, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Training Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation, and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is actually reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for free spring and fall sessions. Visit opctrainingacademy.ca or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual large format magazine celebrating mountain culture, featuring beautiful long form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors. These are stories you sit with and you savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines that you'll keep and you'll come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out at mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. Hi, Corey. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm excited about this. So let's jump right into it. You are like born and bred from the Midwest and have always been a runner. Yeah, pretty wild, I guess. Although I guess it's not that wild, though, because the Midwest does kind of have a running culture to it. Just, I mean, starting in junior high, high school into the collegiate system, there have been some great, you know, track and field and cross country programs that have come out of the Midwest. Awesome. Awesome. So you sort of dipped your toe into trail running when you moved to Colorado. Is that true? Yeah, that was my first introduction to it, which was pretty wild. So I went out to Colorado for a surprise birthday party for my aunt and ended up just falling in love with it out there and went on my first trail run, my first mountain bike ride and decided, oh, I absolutely have to move. Yeah, that's fair. Colorado's a pretty place. Absolutely. So tell me about your first race. Like it's a very big jump to go from running the 800 meter, you know, to marathons to 50 milers. Like talk me through the progression. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it it's definitely a big jump. And as I look back on it, it's it's something that I don't think I ever really imagined that I would be doing. It's so, yeah, I was a 400 meter, 800 meter runner all through junior high, high school into college. And then in college, we run eight kilometers for cross country. And I just thought it was like the longest thing ever. It was torture. Like, oh my goodness, eight kilometers, five miles. Like, Why do we have to do this? And the program that I went to, they pretty much all the seniors end up running a marathon after their last track race and they're, you know, done. And it's like, oh yeah, we all run a marathon. Here you go. And I'd always said, I'm never running a marathon. I will never do that, which jokes on me now. But yeah, so I I also had a swimming background. And so with a running and a swimming background and just dealing with some injuries in college, I ended up finding triathlon and just having a lot of success really early on in triathlon. 
So that kind of made the jump from 400, 800, even, you know, the 1500 or the mile on the track into distance running just a little bit easier. I started with Olympic distance triathlon, which is like 1500 meter swim, 40 kilometer bike ride, 10K run. And it was funny because the 10K run in the triathlon, I thought was the greatest thing ever. But 8K for cross country, don't want any part of it. Yeah, I know it was weird, but that's that's how it was. And then from there, I went up to the half Ironman and actually qualified for the world championships twice while I was in college and just really liked that. So I guess it was the experience of going to Colorado, finding trail running, finding mountain biking that ended up leading me to just kind of shying away from the triathlon side of things, running my first marathon, and then like six weeks later, running my first 50K. And just absolutely loved that. And so then the next year, did a couple 50-mile races and yeah, just wanted to keep going longer. That is wild. I mean, I'll go on the bike all day long and not blink, but running at the 2K mark, I'm finished. (laughs) Yeah, I I get it. (laughs) I mean, I, I understand though. So yeah, I don't know. And that's the thing, like cycling when I was training for triathlon stuff, I really enjoyed being out, you know, that four or five, six hour rides like those were actually fun. And so I think that's kind of what made the jump to ultra running a little bit easier or even the marathon, just because I did have that experience of, you know, moving through space for long periods of time. And so even though it wasn't running, it's still the movement. It's still being active for that many hours at a time. So I think that that kind of helped make the jump to ultra running a little bit easier. Interesting. Interesting. Do you have a favorite distance? Oh boy. Um, right now it's probably a hundred miles. I, I think that it's fun. I think that that's kind of that's where you have a lot of time to fix things if they start going wrong. But if things are going great, then you can kind of ride that out and it's awesome. But I think you just learn a lot during the 100 mile distance. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me some of your favorite trail stories. Tell me your favorite story on the trail. Yeah. So I actually just did Hurt 100 in Hawaii. I guess that would have been a couple of weeks ago. And this was this is kind of different for me. So it was the first time that I had gone into a hundred mile race, really feeling ready to actually compete for the win. And so I was really excited for that. You know, I had a great training block leading up to it. I felt fit. I got to Hawaii early enough that I could adjust to the heat and humidity. And I thought things were just going to go really well. And it was also the first hundred mile race that I've really focused on since I've been sober, which now has been 14 or 15 months. And so I'm like, oh yeah, like I have all these things that are going great for me. Like this is going to be an awesome race. And I got to the hundred kilometer mark, you know, 62 miles in and I was just like, I absolutely hate running. I'm never running a hundred miles again. I am not doing this. Like I don't want to be here. And it was just like, oh man, like things are not going well right now. And the funny part about it is from a competitive standpoint, I was still in maybe third or fourth and still moving okay. But just mentally, it's like, I am so over this and everything hurts right now. I'm kind of tired. 
I need more calories. Just like all these things are going on. And I thought about it and like, is this really how I want to spend time off work? Like, do I really want to be out here, you know, being kind of miserable and like voluntarily doing this, (laughs) you know? And so it was just one of those funny things where in the moment, I'm like, I really don't want to be here. So I come into the aid station at mile 67 and I had told my crew before the race, I said, I do not want to sit down at any point during this race. Do not let me sit in the chair. Just keep me moving. We have to keep these aid stations quick just because, you know, once you start sitting down, then it gets easier to do and easier to do. So at mile 67, any things weren't going well. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to lay down and I am going to take in as many calories as I can, take in the fluids, just get a full on reset, and then just get back up and finish the last 33 or whatever miles it was. So I stop, reset, and then I have a pacer with me and we go out and we're just talking on the trail and wasn't doing a ton of running at that point, mostly hiking, but had a really enjoyable last 30 miles or so and then finished the race. And afterward, I thought about it and it's like, you know, kind of disappointed that I didn't race to win, but I think that I learned a lot about myself in those last miles got to know my pacers a little bit better and just like really had um, an awesome experience to finish out the race. And so, yeah, you know, it was a little bit disappointed for a couple of days and then got over it. Now I'm back to training. Just looking back on it, I think I learned a lot in the, especially in the final miles of that race, that it's the experience that I needed. Yeah. And that's important that you recognize that and didn't push it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, it's so easy to kind of get caught up in the competitive side of things and like, oh man, like it's not going how I want it to. Like we have to push harder to try to fix this or that or whatever. And I was just like, you know, I'm I'm still okay. Like I'm going to finish this race and I'm going to finish it pretty well. There's there's nothing to be mad about. And it just, it, it was all learning experience. So for my listeners who don't know a lot about ultra running, what's sort of the expected time frame that you'll finish a 100 mile race in? <laughs> Yeah, so her 100 is known for just being one of the gnarliest races in the U.S. And so because of that, the course record is, I think, 19 hours and 30 minutes for men. And it's like 24 hours and 30 minutes for women. And it's it's just, I mean, compared to something like Western States, where the course records are five hours faster at Western States compared to Hertz. Oh man, you know, this is, it's, it's just a slow moving race. And so you're, you're on your feet for literally a day or more. I can't even fathom that. That's incredible. So how do you fuel for something like that? Oh boy. How do you feel? My favorite part, actually, you get to, I mean, some people have a very dialed nutrition plan where it's, They are going to drink so many ounces of water or electrolytes every 10 minutes or 12 minutes. And, you know, they're going to take in so many grams of carbs and sugar and whatever at these certain intervals. I'm not that person. Like, I, I wish I wish I had that in me to be able to follow a schedule or a timetable like that. But realistically, that's just not me. And that's okay. So... I use Gnarly Nutrition, which they're out of Salt Lake City, Utah, and they make carb electrolyte drink that you can have. And they make just different forms of liquid fuel that you can use. 
but I also love real food when I'm out there. So I'll make a turkey and Swiss wrap and like we'll take one of those and stuff it in my hydration pack. Or sometimes I'll have a cheeseburger or, <laughs> or I mean, cupcakes or just like literally real food. And it doesn't have to be super healthy, which is funny because you think, oh, running and running is supposed to be healthy. It's a hundred miles. You'd think you'd be really healthy. When really it's like, if there is a Taco Bell on the course, I'd probably stop at Taco Bell along the way and just eat that as I'm running. <laughs> I learned a great tip from your Twitter account the other week where you're like, these cupcakes are going in my running pack and that's why they're not frosted. And I was like, ah, mm-hmm. good oh, tip yeah. for the ski backpack, unfrosted cupcakes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, Definitely. <laughs> So another challenge of yours that I have been following was the 2022 dessert every day. Did you, did you make the challenge? Did you have dessert every day in 2022? I did. I did have dessert every day in 2022. And it's, it's funny because originally I kind of put it out there as a joke, but I was serious about it. And it ended up becoming a challenge to continue to find new cupcakes, or cake, or pie, or cheesecake, basically any dessert. It just became a challenge to find new things because I love key lime pie cheesecake. That is just my favorite thing. Key lime pie cheesecake, key lime pie, key lime anything really. And by the end of the year, it was like, oh, I I have to eat another slice of this. I can do this. I can get through it. And it was just so funny because I didn't think that I'd ever have a problem wanting to eat dessert. And it just became an actual challenge because the other part of that was I didn't want to eat just a just like a regular mass produced dessert. I wanted it to be from a bakery or something that I made myself or something like that. So to actually just be able to find that stuff all the time really was kind of a challenge. And I also still have a bowl of ice cream every night. I've done that pretty much my whole life and I'm never going to stop that. Granddad did not. Oh yeah. It's like, why Why would you ever, I don't know, ice cream is one of the simplest joys. So I'm not going to give that up. Yeah, no kidding. So I was going back through some of the, some of the interviews you've done before. I didn't want to re-ask a bunch of the same old questions. And I thought something that was really interesting. And, and you had said that after you came out, you had your best personal time in a marathon. Do you want to talk to me about that a little bit? Because I think that that's really amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that was, it It seems like it was so long ago now to me, which it really wasn't that long. I didn't come out until 2016. So that's, that's really not that long ago. So like after college, moved from Illinois to Boulder, Colorado, wanted to do the whole professional triathlon thing, or at least try it. And in that time, I also just found, you know, a new group of friends to hang out with. A lot of them were trail runners or mountain bikers. And it was pretty funny because like, we never really talked about my sexuality and no one ever brought it up. But it was one of those things where like, I don't know that I had really even thought about it too much either. To be completely honest, like up until my early 20s, I really don't think I thought about it that much. Um, and so at one point, I had a couple of friends that completely straight, like married with kids, wives, like all this stuff. 
And they're like, oh, we should go. We should go to a bar. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we probably should. And they're like, yeah, we should go to, I can't even remember the name of the bar. And it ended up being a gay bar. And it was just super funny because I was just like, oh, wow, like there are a lot of dudes here. And they're like, yeah. And they just, just didn't really think about it or anything. No big deal. And then like the next weekend, they're like, hey, like we should go to this other bar. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, whatever. And it was funny because finally at one point I was like, yeah, you know, I, I think I want to talk to you guys about something. And they're like, oh, what? And it's like, I think I'm gay. And they're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> and they're, they're like, that's why we've been taking you to these bars. And it's like, oh, got it. And so it was just, it was really funny. So like, that is like one of my first experiences of like coming out to people, but then finally came out to some of my family members at one point. And then at that point I was actually engaged and was going to be getting married. And that was like the time that I publicly came out. And at that point, it was actually, I guess that was almost exactly what, seven years ago now. And so I was running the Mercedes Marathon, which is was on Valentine's Day and came out on that Monday and then raced that weekend and ran my personal best by like nine minutes. Yeah, went from like a 237 down to 228. So just had like a major breakthrough in the marathon and it just felt like I had this weight lifted off my chest and like, oh man, like this all just feels so good. And I did have one of my best years of racing. Wow. That's got to say so much about like not just being in a physical space, to do sport, but to be like in a mental space to do sport, to find like that calmness on the inside. Absolutely. And it's funny because I don't know that, I guess, I don't know that I knew I was missing that calmness. So for me, I'm just like, whatever. And then it's like, oh, a lot of these like series of events are happening that are just kind of leading to that calmness, you know? And then it's, you have the moment where you come out and then it's like, oh, okay, I feel like I can do anything. And then really did go out and basically do anything during that marathon. And it was pretty awesome. Yeah, that is incredible. Also, like, kudos to your pals, right? For just being really good pals. Absolutely. It was actually, it was just so cool because I was just like, oh, yes. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, we know. We were like, <laughs> we, we, they were like, we're not going to bring it up because you never brought it up. But we we're also just kind of curious if you were ever going to figure it out. So we just kind of wanted to nudge you along a little bit. <laughs> I love that. You talk about finding that calmness on the inside, but you've also talked before about like sort of gatekeeping yourself when it comes to your emotions so that no one can sort of press you into that angry black person stereotype. I don't think people realize the like additional emotional labor that athletes of color have to go through. Yeah. It, absolutely. That is definitely a great question and a good topic. It's uh, it can be hard at times for sure. And I think that just over the last few years, we've seen everything from me coming out and being, you know, like the happy young gay kid that's in the trail running in outdoor space to like things getting a little bit darker in there and watching the unraveling a little bit. And now it's like, I'm just in my era of peace and here I am and I'm happy and this is me. And so I think it's just been like a progression of like all of that. And when I first got into the outdoor space, I don't know that, I guess I really don't know that I thought I was going to become any 
thing in the outdoor space to be honest i guess i just i'm just like oh yeah i like to run far and i like to run fast and this is just what i'm gonna do and then i don't think i realized that there'd be more media and exposure and just pressure i guess put on me through different brands or experiences or whatever just to basically be a role model be a voice be an advocate and I mean, I'm originally from a town of like 18,000 people in the Midwest, like small town, Illinois. And I had no idea that like you could see my face on Amazon Prime, like things like that, you know? And so like when I did Eco Challenge, I mean, it was season one, episode one, like my face is on the thumbnail of that. And it's just so wild, I guess, to watch me myself grow up from getting into the sport when I was 23, 24, 25 to now at 32, almost 33, it feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's been just a whirlwind progression and journey. And, you know, they, it's, I don't know that I've always faced everything with like the best attitude and as gracefully as I probably could have. But when you have all these eyes on you all the time, like it's not always going to be pretty. That's okay. But you, you have become a role model and now, and you, you've done work like with your sponsors, with North Face to, to increase participation from marginalized communities in the trail running space. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that art of being an athlete. I think that's one of the best things, one of the coolest things we can do. Like right now, yes. Yep, actually can talk about that because by the time this is out, it will be public knowledge. So the, last year, the North States put up that we were going to have an athlete development program coming out. And so basically 20 athletes would be selected. We'll have 20 mentors and it'll be across trail running, snow sports, climbing. Basically, there's like different criteria that we had for athletes that we we're kind of searching for. And with that, those athletes will then be assigned one of the athletes on the North Face team. And we are their mentor for basically the next year and a half or so. And with that, we're trying to create avenues of just teaching them what it is to be a professional athlete, what it is to be an athlete of the North Face. And, you know, but it doesn't like some of these athletes may be offered a full-time contract after this program is out. Some of them might not, but at least they will have the tools to know like, this is how you talk about contracts. This is how you handle social media. This is how you make connections with other brands and other people in these outdoor spaces. So even if they don't make it onto our team, they will at least have the tools to be able to approach other brands and talk about maybe they can make it onto that team because maybe we are not the best fit for them, but they still now have the skills for that. And so I'm super pumped for this program. I love it. And it's one of the things that I've been just very passionate about in my career because I didn't have anyone that was out there telling me like, this is how you approach brands. This is how you get noticed by brands. These are the races you have to do. And like when I was reaching out to people, some people were very nice and they would be like, oh yeah, well, maybe you should go around this or, oh yeah, maybe you should go around that. It's like, well, I can't just fly to UTMB and race it without even knowing how to get in. It's like, and it was like, what is UTMB? Can somebody please explain that to me first? And then I need to know how to get in. So we're just trying to make it just more accessible to, well, everybody. But it's, yeah, 
That's it's so critical. And it's it's a conversation that, you know, I've been a part of in the ski world, that business literacy, that media literacy for up and coming athletes and up and coming people in the space. And, you know, when you're generationally in the space, you've got a little bit more access, you've got a little bit more understanding. But for folks that, you know, their their families were not a part of this space, they don't have that mentorship within their communities it can be really difficult to break in regardless of your talent. Absolutely. And that was the thing. It's just, I mean, my family, they're not outdoorsy people. So like, there you go. And just like my parents still to this day, I don't think they fully understand what it is that I do. They just are very proud of me and they love to watch the live stream of the videos and they will watch the little dot tracker move on the trail all day long and they love it. But like, if you ask them what I actually do, it would be, I would, I'd actually love to hear that answer, but yeah. You should ask. (laughs) I absolutely. And so, so it's just some of those things where it's like breaking into the space was not an easy thing to do. And especially at that point I had like 75 Instagram followers. And so it's like, I don't even know who to reach out to. Like no one is following me. Like people aren't paying attention to what I'm putting out, like all this stuff. And so, and like now trying to break into it with like social media and everything, it's just so hard to figure out what makes you unique and how, you know, you have the talent and the story and how to actually just present that to a company and be like, hey, this is why I think I'm worthy of being on the team. Absolutely. And I think also for our our younger generation of color, BIPOC youth, there's also sort of a, what's the word I'm looking at, like an imposter syndrome that happens where they don't necessarily feel that they belong because they don't see other people like them. Absolutely. And that's that's super real. And it's one of those things where it's like, no, but you do belong you do belong and then there's also part of it where it's like well am i only on the team because i'm black or because i'm gay or xyz you know and so you start thinking about those things and it's like no i'm here because i have talent and so that's one of those things that you always have to remind yourself is you are a very talented athlete you are a special person you are great you do belong there so that's that's like half of the battle right there. Like that, it really is though. Because, and then the other thing is like, don't sell yourself short. Like sometimes these companies will just offer you like a small contract because they know they can hook you and they'll just be like, oh yeah, like you'll then be able to say you're an athlete for them and they really didn't have to do that much can say that, you know, they're helping advance the sport that way. It's like, no, if you want to actually help advance the sport, then put your money where your mouth is and actually give it, like do it. Exactly. For our younger folks, regardless of what, you know, sport that they are emerging into, what advice would you give them to avoid being that token? Like, how do you develop authentic relationships? That's a big question. But if you had like two or three points to give them, what would it be? Yeah. For why you started, that's a huge thing. Just remember why you started. Remember what you love about the sport. And if you can use that as your guiding light of what drives you to continue to advance in your sport. I think that companies can really see that and see your authenticity to that. And that's what they're drawn to because it's really not that hard to be, you know, 
get your sport for a couple months out of the year and then maybe just have one season and then be gone. But that's not necessarily what brands are looking for. Like brands want to build relationships with athletes. They want athletes that are going to be, you know, real people, relatable to others. And they want athletes to have a story. Like, yes, there are some that they just want to be like fast, strong, whatever, and go in whatever and great. But a lot of times that's just kind of another part of it, but that's not the full thing. And I think that's what's kind of changed a lot over the last, I'd say over the last 10 years even. Because I'd say 10 years ago is a lot more about results. And now they want stories with the results. I guess the second thing, that was actually a couple of things, I think. Second thing, the second thing I think I'd say is you're going to be told no a lot. There'll just be a lot of no's that happen. It might be no or not right now, or let's revisit this later. But the thing is, if that's what you know that you want, then just keep at it and don't sell yourself short. That's phenomenal advice. Thank you. That's yeah, really absolutely. So I want to go back to 2020. In June of 2020, you ran the Ice Age Trail, which is like 1,200 miles. You did it in 21 days. That's a massive feat. And I know you've talked a lot about, you know, the running. I know you had an ankle injury during it, a lot of that. But I want to talk about when you did it. You did it in June of 2020, which is we were all still in lockdowns. This is the onset of the pandemic. We didn't have a lot of information. We didn't have vaccines. This was immediately after the murder of George Floyd. June is Pride Month. That is a very heavy social climate in which to be vulnerable and out in public at times alone. And, and I know you've talked about this experience before, but but talk to me about that experience, but also now that you're away from it, reflecting back on it. Yeah, I say that is a very long three weeks. Just as you said, there is a lot going on that June. And I, I don't know that I really understood what all was going on in that June, because at that point, I had just been at home, you know, like everybody else for long enough. Still, like, Illinois shut down our parks, but you could still be out so you could run on the road. And it's like, well, oh, so I can run on the road, but I can't run on trail, whatever. Here we go. So I had just been bored just running the road. And so finally I was thinking about like, what can I do that will get me out of the house, but still keep me away from a lot of other people. And I'd always just kind of been fascinated with the ice age trail and I knew it was 1200 miles and it's in Wisconsin, which is the state right above us. So it's like, you know, I think I just want to go after the fastest known time on this. And at first it was funny because I presented it to multiple sponsors and they're like, we're kind of in the middle of a pandemic, so we don't know that this is really the best thing you should be doing, just because if you're going to be around a lot of other people, then, you know, it's more for your safety. It's like, well, it's actually a 1,200-mile trail, so I don't really know how many other people I'm going to be around, so I think I'll be okay. <laughs> and, and I was like, I also run for a company that makes really great tents and sleeping bags. So, you know, even if hotels aren't open, I have a tent, I have a sleeping bag of the crew can have their own tents and sleeping bags. And I think we can do this. And so I was, oh yeah, I'm going to do this in June, which June in Wisconsin can be a wonderful thing. It can be 60 degrees and sunny. 
or it can also be like a 90 super humid with a lot of bugs or it can still be snowing so you never really know what you're going to get but what i didn't realize is when i had planned all of this out that because of the pandemic starting that they were not allowed to do trail maintenance from March, March until June 1st. So there were a couple different hurdles that were all happening here with (laughs) like with the Western terminus of the Ice Age Trail being about an hour from Minneapolis. And I actually had one of my crew members flying into Minneapolis and and then with the roads being blocked due to protests and stuff, he actually didn't know if he was going to be able to make it from the airport to the area we were staying before the start of the Ice Age Trail. So that's just like one thing already stressing us out before this even began. And then as we were out there, hotels were shut down, restaurants were shut down, campgrounds were shut down, public restrooms were closed. And people knew that I was doing the Ice Age Trail. So as soon as I started on June 1st, and when they were allowed to start doing trail maintenance again, people are going out and just trying to clear as much of the trail as they could for me, which is super amazing. But just one of those things where there are sections of trail that I was just walking through it as blowdown after blowdown and just flooded trail, mud, just like stuff up to even like my knees. And it's just, oh man. So the first week was pretty slow moving, but it was, it was a very awesome experience overall. So there are a couple, people don't really think of Wisconsin as being the most diverse place, especially once you get into some of like the Northern sections. And, and so at that time, the political climate was pretty dicey. And it's like, oh, I'm actually going to be out there from 8 a.m. until 3 a.m. almost every day. And I I didn't have a pacer with me all the time. So there are stretches that I was out there alone and stretches where sometimes I'd go 15 or 20 miles without seeing my crew as I'm out there in the middle of the night with a headlamp on. Going through some sections that end up, you know, being the Ice Age Trail, but it also goes through somebody's private property or it goes right along people's backyards in the woods. And yeah, so definitely some, a couple stressful nights in there. But one of the coolest things was when people heard that I was doing the trail and they knew that we were raising money for Feeding America, there are so many people in Wisconsin that came out And they were bringing us home-cooked meals. They were bringing us baked goods. They were opening up their homes to us to actually let us come in and shower, sleep in an actual bed for a night, just like all of these things. And so, yes, here we are in the middle of like a very spicy political climate and a, you know, a pandemic. And people are like, yes, but what you're doing is greater than all of that. So we are willing to open up our home to you. And or we are willing to cook this for you or we're going to come out and we're going to pace for you, just all these different things. And so it was just a really awesome experience and it really kind of restored my faith in humanity over those three weeks. And I was also just very thankful that as everything was going on and what you see in the media and all of that, it's like we were away from that for those three weeks and just got to, you know, be out and just do what I do best, which is move pretty well on trail and connect with people. 
and, you know, show the human side of things. And so I just thought that was really awesome. That is incredible. And I, and I never want to like erode from the fact that everyone has to find safety for their person, whomever they are out in space. But it's just such an important lesson that, you know, some of the things that we're getting amped up about on Twitter is on Twitter, but not always in the real world. Absolutely. And kind of building on that, we live in Georgia now. And so it's it's very interesting. So I moved down here when I got sober. And people are like, wow, that's a really interesting life choice for you. Like, it's Georgia. I'm like, yes, it is Georgia. It's warm. There are mountains and people are nice. And people are, yeah, but is that really where you want to be? It's like, yeah, actually, this is where I really want to be. And one of the things is like the trail systems down here are amazing. And just the outdoor community that is down here, I think kind of gets forgotten about by, you know, the West Coast. And it's, it's amazing down here. And I go to trailheads. I go to trailheads alone quite often, actually. Sometimes I'm on trail alone after dark and like, I feel safe down here. And it's one of those things where if you seeing it on the news or seeing it on Twitter, you'd think, oh, wow, Corey's really unsafe down in Georgia. It's like, no, I've, I've paid a lot of great friends down here. I've been in these outdoor spaces and it's like, we need to get more people in the outdoors here and show them like, it is okay. Like, please come out, please join us for runs, join us for hikes. And, you know, if you don't feel safe going alone, that's totally valid. And I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody in every spot. But at the same time, it's like, I'm going into some of these small towns. and I know the owners of these coffee shops now because I stop in every time I'm going to the same trailhead. And they're like, oh, how far are you running today, Corey? You know, just like stuff like that. And so I get that people can get really worked up over social media, but I'm like, please get out into the real world also. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. I'm, you know, I'm from Alberta. They like to call us Canada's Texas. And, and it's true. The, the things that you see on the social media about my town doesn't reflect my experience as part of the bike community here and a part of the outdoor community here. And, and yes, we all need to manage our own safety and it's okay to feel unsafe and to want, you know, to be a part of a bigger group, to be a part of a bigger community. But, you know, also the world maybe isn't as scary as Twitter would have us believe. Absolutely. And that's, and you said it very well. Like, yes, we do need to look out for our own safety and, you know, be very aware of our surroundings. But I would, I would also argue that everybody should be very aware of their surroundings and looking out for their own safety when, especially in the outdoors. Because, yeah, it's just, it is part of it. Yeah, that's, that's one thing I've, kind of been working on is just trying to get more people into the outdoors and especially in cities like Chattanooga because I work in chat and so it's only like 20 minutes from me now and it's like there are so many great places to hike that you can hike in the town and still do a 5k loop on trail that's still going to give you these great views and so just starting like small by getting people to those places where they don't even have to go out in like into the mountains. Like that's just one thing. Or if you look at cities like Atlanta, Atlanta has an amazing green space and you could totally put on like an urban trail race in the city of Atlanta. It'd still be green. 
And I think people would feel a lot more comfortable in that and then have the confidence to branch out. That's important too. I think those of us in the outdoor space tend to overlook the whole urban community. And, you know, how are we reaching out to urban communities, urban folks, urban youth, and showing them that like, you know, going skiing doesn't mean going to Aspen. Going trail running doesn't mean going to Colorado. You know, like there's there's options where you are. Absolutely. And so that's kind of one of my projects for this next year is just kind of like showcase some of that stuff and make that seem cool and appealing. I love that. We'll be following that very closely. Awesome. <laughs> so I had to giggle. I, I looked at your website and, and your website tagline made me laugh out loud. It said running beer, bourbon, wine, and shenanigans. And as a connoisseur of shenanigans, tell me your favorite shenanigans. <laughs> oh man. I mean, it really just depends on the day. And it, it's super funny because I guess I haven't updated my website for a very long time. <laughs> Because now there's no bourbon, beer, or wine. Still plenty of shenanigans, though. Usually in, usually involves coffee. Because I just, I love coffee and drink coffee all day. But I don't know. I mean, oh, I don't know. It's If there's a cupcake and coffee, then after that, I can't really tell you it's going to happen. Because a little bit of caffeine and some sugar. And it's like, who knows, what's, who knows what the day is going to bring. But not iced coffee. No. Not an iced coffee fan. I don't know. It's it's never been appealing to me. I guess I did in Vegas. I had a coffee flight, which had four different types of coffee. And I think I got two of them that were iced and two that were regular. And it was, I, I drank it. But I mean, you could also just make iced coffee by leaving your coffee out overnight or like putting a cup of coffee in the fridge and then, I don't know, adding some cream and sugar to it. But it just, I would never do it. And so, yeah, I just, I refuse. So it gets to be like 105 degrees here in the summer and I will still be drinking a hot cup of coffee. Everyone else is like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Look at my iced vanilla latte or get my iced coffee or get my cold brew. And I'm like, I love this cappuccino. <laughs> it's, <laughs> no. And, and it's funny. So when I ordered coffee from basically any coffee shop in the summer there is like oh yeah one iced vanilla latte coming up and like no a vanilla latte huh. we're gonna have to agree to disagree i am um, i'm i'm good with the cold brew year round dude i don't know you're just built different <laughs> it's a it must be it's that canadian blood right it might be <laughs> it might be the canadian blood yeah <laughs> i like it so you you have done a ton of media, especially in the last couple of years. And so what's one question that you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked you? Hmm. What's something you've never had an opportunity to talk about? Huh. Oh boy. I don't know. So one, there's one podcast that we were talking about food and like cooking and what it was like growing up in the Midwest, like what our food culture was in the Midwest. And I don't think I had a great answer for that one back then because as like food culture in the Midwest, it's like casseroles and beer <laughs> and, and using salt and pepper and Mrs. Dash would be seasoning. And so it's <laughs> like food culture. What is that? You want to revise your answer from last time? Yeah. Well, I was actually back in my hometown a couple of weeks ago. 
And I'm still convinced that that is food culture (laughs) in the Midwest. It's casserole, salt and pepper, beer, cheese, and and burgers. So I'd say that grilling is also a very solid um, food culture. (laughs) (laughs) But... And there's nothing wrong with that, but but I don't know. So down here in the south, it's funny because I like to make casseroles, and everyone's like, "Oh, hot dish!" I'm like, what? And they're like, "Yeah, hot dish." I'm like, but is that like I just I have so many questions when people say that because a broccoli cheddar casserole, like, is that broccoli cheddar hot dish or like does hot dish have multiple forms of what it could be? Would that also include like a peach cobbler, a cherry cobbler, or is that just strictly dessert? I I don't know. Just, yeah. So yeah, I guess there is a casserole hot dish culture down here as well. Yeah, the one question. I honestly don't know because I always think it's going to, there is always something that kind of just hits me out of left field where it, where, oh, I didn't think we we're going to be talking about that today. So I don't really know what that one question is. That's Okay. What's your favorite casserole or hot dish? You know, just like some rice, broccoli, cheddar cheese. Love that. Throw some bacon in there. And I think you're pretty good. That's probably my favorite. And it's also super easy to make. I've also been loving taking some leftovers, just like leftover vegetables or whatever, chop those up, throw that in there with it. And it's also like chili season down here. So you can also add some chili into that and then just throw some more cheese on it and bake it. You're good. That sounds delicious. I love yeah, it. It's kind of a mess, but it's a good mess. It's a good mess. So what's coming up for the rest of the season? You did the you did the white race in Hawaii already this year. What else have you got coming up? Yeah, it's gonna be an interesting year of racing for me because I've had terrible luck with the lotteries for the last couple of years. And then this year, it's like, oh, I've gotten into I got into pretty much everything. And so I got it. So her I had been applying to get into Hurt since 2018 and then got in this year, which I also got into Western States in June and had been applying for that since 2018. And then found out I got into CCC at UTMB, which is in September this year. And I have also been applying for that since 2018. It's your year. Yep. So 100 miler in January, 100 miler in June, 100K in September. And then I'm not really sure if I really want to race anything else after that this year because I don't need to. And so I'm just going to kind of see what happens because I've thought about doing some more FKT type stuff later in the year or possibly just actually enjoying fall in the south for once and just running for fun and you know the fall colors are beautiful down here and it's not super hot starting in late october so it'd actually be really nice just to get out and run for fun yeah absolutely for our listeners where do they find you where do they where do they follow you and your race adventures yeah i am an interesting follow on Twitter. You never really know what you're going to get with me there, but I'm GCXC13 on Twitter. And then I'm also on Instagram. And I think I'm just at Corey Woltering on Instagram. And those are kind of my most active social media things these days. Awesome. Corey, thank you so much for joining me. This was a great conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was fun. 
And that is it for another episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Links on where to find Corey and all of the different things that we talked about are available on the show notes at bipocoutside.com. And if you have any answers about hot dish, don't hesitate to get in touch. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Bipoc Outside.